Aaronic priesthood. Priestly authority that is believed by Mormons to automatically descend by lineage from Aaron to his descendants, but which can also be conferred by the laying on of hands upon Gentiles who would otherwise not possess such authority. It has the right to perform outward ordinances, including baptism. This priesthood was conferred on Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery on May 15, 1829 by the resurrected John the Baptist. The Aaronic or Levitical priesthood is an association with angels. This lesser priesthood holds some connection with heaven, with an opportunity to associate with the powers of heaven. The law was given under Aaron for the purposes of pouring out judgments and destructions. TNC 54, paragraph 2 is a description of the authority of this lower priesthood. It has the authority to seal up unto destruction. These who go forth with this power condemn and are, in a word, ironic. Notwithstanding the condemnatory role, the ironic priesthood is not without hope, having the power to baptize, which is an ordinance of hope. The ironic priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels. Angels were the source from which priesthood was restored. Angels can lead people to the Son of God. The Son of God can take a person to the throne of the Father. Every bit of what is to be accomplished through priesthood is possible to achieve so long as one gets ironic priesthood into the hands of someone. Looking at the lay of the land today, there are not many who can say that they have been in fellowship with angels or realize the blessings of ironic priesthood. There are fewer still who can say that they have been in fellowship with Christ, and there are only a small handful who have been in fellowship with the Father. Everything that is necessary to start down the pathway comes as a consequence of receiving some portion of priesthood. The elected offices associated with ironic priesthood in the church organized by Joseph Smith were priest, teacher, deacon, as well as bishop, and were no different than any other office in that church. These offices still continue in many of the various religious groups claiming Joseph Smith as their founder. See also, Elder. Abomination The use of religion to suppress truth or impose a false form of truth. It involves the religious justification of wrongdoing. That is, something becomes abominable when it is motivated out of a false form of religious observance or is justified because of religious error. Accountability All are accountable before God for their own sins, CTNC 101, paragraph 17. No one can escape responsibility based on their willful ignorance. If one has the Scriptures, he knows he cannot be saved in ignorance. All have been warned that the Scriptures have information that is able to teach them about salvation, see 2 Timothy 1, paragraph 9. There also is the Lord's warning to search into the Scriptures if one expects eternal life, see John 5, paragraph 7. When this is before one, it is impossible to sin ignorantly, even if that ignorance is a result of one's own neglect, see 3 Nephi 3, paragraph 3. King Benjamin's testimony was that the atonement would allow everyone to repent, and even those who sin ignorantly would be forgiven of their sins, see Mosiah 1, paragraph 15. To King Benjamin's thinking, the great error was willfully doing what one knows was against God's will. However, even then, King Benjamin invited his listeners to repent and reclaim the mercy God offered, see Mosiah 1, paragraph 15. His sermon presumes that his audience were sinners and suffered from myriad shortcomings. As King Benjamin explained, the natural man is an enemy to God, 
and has been from the fall of Adam, and will be forever and ever, but if he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man, and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father, Mosiah 1, paragraph. 16. This doctrine is astonishing because it makes each person individually accountable to follow the Holy Spirit, presumes that the Holy Spirit will entice you directly, puts each person in a position to be submissive to God, accepts the fact that life will always inflict even the best of us, makes God the one who is responsible for life's challenges, and bids us to accept these afflictions, because they come from a wise eternal parent. King Benjamin is remarkably democratic in his view of God and his involvement in men's and women's lives. God is direct, immediate, and involved with everyone. The Book of Mormon is a record that will be used as evidence we have been warned. In plain language and with sufficient truth to hold us all accountable, this is the standard by which we are to find our way back to the Lord in this last dispensation before His return. Accountability Age of Children should be taught to understand the doctrine of Christ and may be baptized when eight years old. CTNC 55, paragraph 5, Genesis 7, paragraph 30, and 1 Peter 1, paragraph 14. In Moroni 8, a letter from Mormon to his son, Moroni, Mormon quotes the Savior as having said, in relation to infant baptism, the following, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician, but they that are sick. Wherefore, little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore, the curse of Adam is taken from them in me, that it hath no power over them. And the law of circumcision is done away in me, Moroni 8, paragraph 2. Little children are exempt from these requirements, as they are fulfilled in every respect by Christ's atonement. Therefore, they needn't be baptized, needn't be confirmed, needn't have circumcision, and they needn't comply with any of the requirements for salvation because Christ atoned for all sin arising from the fall of Adam. Little children are not sick, and therefore, do not need a physician. Christ removed all accountability for any law in the atonement for all infants, through the age of eight, who are not accountable before Him. The Lord has given instructions in two other modern revelations, but behold, I say unto you that little children are redeemed from the foundation of the world through my only begotten. Wherefore, they cannot sin, for power is not given to Satan to tempt little children, until they begin to become accountable before me. For it is given unto them, even as I will, according to my own pleasure, that great things may be required at the hand of their fathers. And again, I say unto you who, having knowledge, have not I commanded to repent? And he that has no understanding, it remains in me to do according as it is written. And now behold, I declare no more unto you at this time. Amen, TNC 9, paragraph 14. And again, inasmuch as parents have children in Zion, that teach them not to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the Son of the living God, and of baptism, and the gift of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of the hands, when eight years old, the sin be upon the head of the parents. For this shall be a law unto the inhabitants of Zion, and their children shall be baptized for the remission of their sins when eight years old, and receive the laying on of the hands. 
and they also shall teach their children to pray and to walk uprightly before the Lord. TNC 55, paragraph 5. Accuse Joseph Smith taught, If you do not accuse each other, God will not accuse you. If you have no accuser you will enter heaven, and if you will follow the revelations and instructions which God gives you through me, I will take you into heaven as my back load. If you will not accuse me, I will not accuse you. If you will throw a cloak of charity over my sins, I will over yours, for charity covereth a multitude of sins. This notion of accusing one another is an important principle. Joseph is explaining something directly relating to obtaining salvation. Accusing someone is satanic. One of the titles for Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan's accusations are not said to be unwarranted or unsupported. He is not necessarily accusing his victims unjustly. It is probable some, if not all, of the accusations were, or are, just. If all were measured by an absolute standard of obedience, faithfulness, or virtue, all would necessarily fail. Satan does not need to use an unfair standard to accuse and condemn. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 1, paragraph 16. So if you want to condemn any of us, you need only look at our actual deeds and you will find sufficient reason to accuse us. Yet the negative and condemned role of accusing belongs to Satan. Those who take it upon themselves to do the condemning are acting the part of Satan. What Christ has asked us to do is forgive each other. Or, as Joseph put it, we are asked not to accuse each other. See also the glossary entries, Satan. Lucifer. Adam. Adam, who was the first man, who is spoken of in Daniel as being the Ancient of Days, or in other words, the first and oldest of all, the great grand progenitor, of whom it is said in another place he is Michael. Because he was the first and father of all, not only by progeny, but he was the first to hold the spiritual blessings, to whom was made known the plan of ordinances for the salvation of his posterity unto the end, and to whom Christ was first revealed, and through whom Christ has been revealed from heaven and will continue to be revealed from henceforth. Adam holds the keys of the dispensation of the fullness of times. That is, the dispensation of all the times have been and will be revealed through him, from the beginning to Christ, and from Christ to the end of all the dispensations that are to be revealed, TNC 140, paragraph 3. The creation of the man Adam was primarily and specifically in the image of my only begotten, meaning Jesus Christ, and secondarily in the image of God the Father. God the Father was the Father of Jesus Christ in the Spirit, as well as the biological Father of Jesus Christ in the flesh. God the Father was also the Father of the Spirit of the man Adam, but the biological Father of Adam in the garden was in the image of my only begotten. Christ and his companion were the physical parents of the man Adam. Adam, the Son of God, possessed the holy order after the order of the Son of God, which was given to him in the beginning, before the world began. See Genesis 3, paragraph 23, Luke 3, paragraph 38 King James Version, and Abraham 1, paragraph 1 and 3. Included within this order is the right to preside over all of the human family and the right to minister to Adam's posterity. Adam continues to hold this presiding position and will do so until the end of time. The keys of the holy order have to be brought from heaven whenever the gospel is sent. When they are revealed from heaven, it is by Adam's authority. 
He Adam, is the father of the human family, and presides over the spirits of all men, and all that have had the keys must stand before him in this grand council. This may take place before some of us leave this stage of action. The Son of Man stands before him Adam, and there is given him glory and dominion. Adam delivers up his stewardship to Christ, that which was delivered to him as holding the keys of the universe, but retains his standing as the head of the human family. See also the glossary entry, Eve. Adam on Diamon. The phrase means Adam in the presence of son Amon. The first occurrence of Adam on Diamon happened near the place now known as Spring Hill in Missouri. Since it was an event, in which the location acquired significance because of what happened there, the term describes a future event, rather than just a fixed location. Latter-day Saints think the future event will take place at the same location as the first event, but like the location of the New Jerusalem, it may happen elsewhere. At that meeting the posterity of Father Adam will give an accounting to Christ, preliminary to Christ's return as the one whose right it is to preside over all things. Adoption Joseph Smith first mentioned adoption in a discussion about the Kingdom of God in October 1843, eight months before his death. He began the actual practice of adopting men, but it did not get well enough defined for the right to continue following his death. Joseph's original instruction connected the living faithful to the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This connection was through priesthood, not genealogy. Joseph was connected by his priesthood, becoming a father to all who would live after him. Families would be organized under Joseph, as the father of the righteous in this dispensation. Accordingly, men were sealed to Joseph Smith as their father, with they as his sons. This was referred to as adoption because the family organization was priestly, according to the law of God, not biological. As soon as Joseph died, the doctrine began to erode, ultimately being replaced by the substitute practice of sealing genealogical lines together. In between the time of original adoptive sealing to Joseph Smith and the current practice of tracking genealogical or biological lines, there was an intermediate step when families were tracked back as far as research permitted, then the line was sealed to Joseph Smith. That practice is now forgotten and certainly no longer practiced. The growing uncertainty, redefinition, and abandonment of the practice of adoption has been traced in an article which appears in the Journal of Mormon History. It demonstrates how quickly the topic became confused. When Joseph died, all understanding of the practice of adoption was quickly lost. Joseph Smith regarded adoption to be important for salvation. It was lost when he died. Before the Lord's return, this will need to be clarified by the Lord returning to a place on the earth in which He can come and restore again that which was lost even the fullness of the priesthood, TNC 141, paragraph 10, and its attendant rites. This is an orderly process that was ordained in heaven before the creation and implemented at the time of Adam, and it must be followed in every generation. Until mankind receives the kingdom, or family of God, and the fathers in heaven, in strict order, they will remain unprepared for the Lord's return. The hearts of the fathers and hearts of the children must be sealed together. Pretenders cannot accomplish it, because they will neither know how nor have the authority. Adultery To look on a woman to lust after her or commit adultery in their hearts means the actual scheming or mental planning to engage or seduce. Teen C. 50 
paragraph 4. See also, Matthew 3, paragraph 21, TNC 26, paragraph 8, and 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 27. It is not just a passing biological attraction that is subdued by one's will to obey God, nor is it a whispered temptation from a mischievous spirit. Subduing and rejecting that temptation is part of living righteously. Divorce also leads to adultery. When forced away by the man she loves, a woman is then adulterated by the act of the man. He is accountable for the treachery involved in dissolving the marriage that the woman wanted and forcing her into the relation with either no one or with another man. In either case, it is adulterating the marriage which she had with him. He is accountable for that uncharitable, unkind, and unjustified treatment of the woman. On the other hand, when she has lost affection for him and the union has become hollow and without love, then the marriage is dead, and continuation of the relation is a farce. It is not a marriage. In fact, it is a pretense and an abomination unworthy of preservation. It will not endure. We reject adultery by any name or description. It is morally wrong, even if you call it plural wives, polygamy, celestial marriage, or any other misnomer. Adultery is prohibited in the Ten Commandments and remains an important prohibition for any moral society. There is a reason why such a serious sin as adultery ought to be altogether avoided, even if it is only as a foolish temptation contemplating the possibility of a plural wife. All need greater light and knowledge. The only way it can be acquired is by heed and diligence to the commandments of God. Any other path is a diversion, intended to waylay a person and prevent him or her from developing as God intends. Those who think they can follow God and yet commit adultery are deceived and giving heed to a false spirit. It is impossible to be both on the path to greater light and also engaged in such a serious sin. In addition to referring to a physical act involving sexual union with another, the term adultery is often used with the connotation of unfaithfulness, as in Israel becoming unfaithful and playing the part of an adulteress, worshipping other gods, see Jeremiah 2, paragraph 1. Agency Freedom or agency really means accountability. That is its chief, if not only, meaning. Men are free therefore, they are accountable before God for all their acts. The atonement affords men and women relief from that accountability for their sins when they repent. Taking advantage of the atonement for that purpose however, does require them to obey Christ's conditions. Ancient of Days this name means the oldest man, our father Adam. Michael, 